Hello, gentle listeners. We wanted to hold on. Something's wrong. Yeah, that's better. Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast, where the history is wacky, and so are we. You're hanging out with the outlandish historians, Adrian and Renee. So sit back, relax, maybe take some notes. She's kidding. And enjoy this crazy time travel thing we do. Ahoy, mateys, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. We're sailing into part two of our Golden Age of Piracy series. Arr. So quick thing, turns out this is going to be a three-part series instead of two like we thought. Yeah, when we were getting everything ready for part two, it was just too long with too much information. So the choices were cut it in half or give you half-assed history. And we went with option number one. There will never be any half-assed history here. Never ever. Like, ever. So a three-part series it is, and it will 100% definitely, most likely, be a three-part series. Alright, social media, blah 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 time. Really quick. We are on Twitter at Dear Historians, and Instagram and Facebook at Outlandish Historians for updates about the podcast, guys. Speaking of, with the help of my sous-chef, Renee, of course, we went all out for afternoon tea during the Thanksgiving holiday weekend. Little sandwiches, homemade clotted cream, homemade jam, scones, and so on. So, so good. Just had to brag for like a second. And we shared the photo of our spread on Twitter. Just putting it out there. And if you are in the U.S., we hope you all had a really lovely holiday. FYI, about making clotted cream. If you ever want to do it at home. One, Adrian has a great recipe. Two. You make it sound recipe like you mix shit and you're like, and then two teaspoons of salt. No, but two, get ready for an arm workout. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, yeah, when it's done. Yeah. Wee bit. Just, just a little bit. But all right. If you guys have a second to spare, we ask that you rate and review the podcast where you listen or on our Facebook page. Tell us what you like or what you'd like to hear about. We always, always, always take listener requests. And we've got one coming to you this season. Or you can always email us at hello at dearworldlovehistory.com. Raise the black, weigh anchor, and pile on full canvas. It's time to sail back to the late 1600s and go on the account with the most famous pirates in history. So we're going to hang out with our pirate friends on a pirate-by-pirate basis-ish. It's really the easiest way to cover them all in this episode. Otherwise, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of jumping back and forth and explanation for things that might not happen until later on in the story. But a lot of these fellas do overlap with one another, so they'll pop up a bit in each other's stories. Also, a disclaimer, in case you haven't realized, Adrian may try to shove in as many piratey phrases as she possibly can between parts two and three. You've been warned. Yeah, they're going to be a mix, probably. I'm just, I know that I'm going to do this, but there'll be a mix between the real shit, like, you know, raise the black, and the fake shit, like, ahoy matey which obviously I highly doubt ever any pirate said. And I just want to go back in time and sh- like go up to a pirate and just be like, Ahoy, matey! And then just watch the look of confusion develop on their faces and then maybe get stabbed with a sword. Who knows? They could but pull a pistol. That's true. But I just, I want to know what those, you know, real life 1700s reactions look like. It will be the best 10 seconds of Adrian's life. <laughs> and by that, I mean the best last 10 seconds of her life. Renee's really optimistic about things. Realism. All right, guys, it is time to meet bachelor number one, Captain Thomas II. 
He was an American colonist born in Newport, Rhode Island, who liked swearing like a sailor, privateering, and likely walked on beaches. By 1692, Captain Two was a successful privateer for England, but his privateering career was taking a nosedive. At the time, England and Spain were at peace yet again, so privateers weren't as high in demand anymore. But you can't keep a good privateer down. Some dudes from the Crown Colony of Bermuda asked Two to head up a Mums the Word privateering adventure. Something to do and a good chunk of change to boot? Hell to the yes. Two then invited 60 privateering friends to go with him. But before a ship could set sail, he wanted to make sure all the T's were crossed and all the I's were dotted, which meant his ship, the Amity, had to have its letters of mark. Once he had the green light, out the Amity went in December 1692 in the direction of Africa. At least, that's what Two and the guys behind the adventure told everyone. Instead, Two was heading towards India, but first he had to, one, tell his crew, and two, his crew had to vote on it. He sold it as easy pickings and treasures from the east that would set them all up for life. The crew voted yes. The unknowing target, the Mughal Empire, the rulers of which were Muslim. And unfortunately for this guy, his ships were the opposite of fast. And if that's not bad enough, the sailors on board those ships didn't have the skill set the European sailors did. As soon as two ships made it into the Indian Ocean in April 1693, they were on the hunt. They hunted and searched and hoped every day to catch a prize worthy of the trip. And then they hit pay dirt. A huge ship full of treasures, spices, silks, and most importantly, over 100,000 pounds in gold and silver coins. A year later, Captain Two and the Amity made port back home in Newport, Rhode Island, victorious and glorious. His incredible spoils inspired other sailors. If Captain Two could do it, so could they. Out went a shit ton of captains looking for glory and riches. And then in November 1694, another privateering green light in hand, Captain Two and his crew set off again for the Indian Ocean. Two of the three ships that sailed out with Two didn't make it. They were damaged in a storm and had to turn back to port. When Two and his consort ship finally made it to the Indian Ocean, they were met with a surprise. A ton of other ships were also looking for booty. So they all teamed up like the Power Rangers and went hunting for ships as a group. In September 1695, a ship caught Two's eye. Aha! A prize! Bad news. This ship put up a fight. Worse news. Captain Thomas Two died as a result, bleeding all over the deck of his ship. Two was buried at sea by his crew. He may have died without getting to enjoy life of luxury like he planned, but his story lived on, and continued to inspire future pirates of the world. And that's why we started part two with Thomas Two. Moving on to bachelor number two, Captain Henry Avery a household name and legend if ever there was one. He was the legend who inspired future legends. This guy was born near Plymouth, England, and basically lived his entire life out on the ocean. First, he was a sailor on merchant ships. Then he joined the Royal Navy when England and France were at war with each other. Yet again. That was in 1688. And as he served on various ships, he experienced the joys that drove men to piracy, which we talked about in part one. Physical abuse, harsh punishments, shitty food— and little to no paychecks. Makes you want to keep working for those people, right? Yeah, Avery thought the same thing. So in the spring of 1693, he signed on as a first mate for the Charles II, which was heading to the Caribbean as part of a four-ship mission to trade with the Spanish colonies and steal from French ships. The hope was that there would be better food and pay on the merchant vessel. The Spanish were the ones footing the bill this time, except they weren't paying the crew as in they didn't get paid at all by the time spring rolled around in 1694. 
The Charles II was docked at a port in Spain, and the captain, one Mr. Charles Gibson, didn't do a thing about it. At this point in his life, Avery was 40 years old and an incredibly skilled and competent sailor, who was also a smarty pants. We all like smarty pants, right? Unlike many of his fellow sailors, he could read and write and had a talent for strategy, math, and navigation. Add all of this to the fact that he was respected and liked by his crew, and you have the perfect recipe for a mutiny. And here's where we have two different accounts of how this mutiny went down. According to Raiders and Rebels by Frank Sherry, Avery was going to take command of the ship when the captain wasn't on board. Plan A. Do it when the captain was drinking it up at the tavern. Plan A failed. The captain didn't go ashore the night Avery wanted to take the ship. On to plan B. Steal the ship when the captain was so drunk he couldn't stand on his own two feet. When the captain was in a drunken stupor, Avery and his mutineering friends quietly took control of the ship and snuck it out of the harbor. So quietly, in fact, that the captain and the other sleeping crew members didn't wake up. When they were far enough away, they woke everyone up and Avery let Captain Gibson know that Charles II was no longer his. Gibson and six other crew members who weren't gung-ho about Avery's mutiny were lowered in a boat and off they went back to shore. No harm, no foul. And the crew voted Avery in as the captain, unanimously. The second account comes to us from the Republic of Pirates by Colin Woodard. And it's quite a different story. Way more dramatic. Same ending, though. In this version, Avery went ashore with some friends and recruited a bunch of English sailors from other ships. Right before Avery started his mutiny, there was some hullabaloo over at the James, one of the other three ships that sailed out with the Charles II the year before. The guys on board with the mutiny plan from the James hightailed it over to the Charles II, where Avery was taking control of the ship, avoiding cannon fire from the James at the same time. Lots going on. Once they put some distance between them and the harbor, Avery went and had a chat with Gibson. In this account, Gibson wasn't drunk but sick and stuck in bed, and Avery gave him a choice. Stay, be a part of their plan, and remain in control of the ship, or return to port in a boat. Gibson and the guys who didn't want to join in chose option two. With a new crew and captain came a new name for the ship. The Charles II became the Fancy. Avery raised his own flag and the English flag, St. George's Cross. The Union Jack wasn't a thing yet because at this point, Great Britain didn't exist. And where was Avery heading? To the Indian Ocean, the same hunting grounds that Captain Two made famous. On his way there, he met up with two American pirate ships heading to the same exact place. So, of course, they joined forces to hunt together. Pirates sure do like making friends with each other. With this arrangement, Avery was the pirate in charge of everyone. Finally, in August 1695, the pirates arrived on the scene where they wanted to commit crimes. When they took some fishermen prisoner, they found out that a huge prize was heading their way in the form of the Great Mogul's ships, full to the brim with treasure. And the Great Mogul was, of course, the ruler of the Mogul Empire. Avery and his sailor chums made even more friends before the ships full of treasure arrived on the scene. Two more ships from the American colonies appeared, and, wouldn't you know it, one of them was the Amity, with one Captain Two at the helm. And they all teamed up for the greater pillaging good, and Avery as the captain of all captains. When the time finally came to keep a weather eye on the horizon, the pirates missed the treasure-laden ships altogether. All 25 of them. Whoops. Not the best start, but oh well. No time to dwell or point fingers at each other the next morning. Avery and Two hightailed it after their prizes. The Amity was the first ship to catch up to the Mogul's vessels, and this was the moment where Captain Thomas Two died. With a bing-bang boom, Captain Two was gone, thanks to a cannon from the enemy ship. The Amity pulled back as a result, but the Fancy pulled right in. This time, the Mogul ship was no match for Avery, and they knew it. Instead of fighting, they surrendered. 
Avery's crew boarded the ship and left no stone unturned when they searched for plunder and, bully for them, they found the gold and silver. 50,000 pounds worth of it. But there was still another prize out there. A larger ship was in sight, so Avery and his men went after it. The haul they'd already taken and the one they were going after was the stuff pirate dreams were made of. The fancy raised Avery's flag as a sign that the ship needed to surrender. When the ship didn't give an answer one way or the other, they raised the red. No quarter. Into battle, both ships went. For two long fucking hours, apparently. I can't even imagine how tired they all must have been afterwards. Who even has the energy to check the cargo hold after that? I mean, honestly. Yeah, no, I'd be like, you know what, guys? I'm just going to take a nap, tie them up, nap time for two hours, then we'll take a look. Fuck that shit. Just send the cook. The cook? <laughs> he wasn't doing anything That's during true. the fight. That's true. Well, maybe he was making the food. You know, my pirates will be so hungry when they're done all their pillaging and plundering. Do they cook when battles are going on? <laughs> that would know. be hysterical. <laughs> or maybe in this case, it'd be like, well, this has been going on for like, well, fuck, like an hour. That's it. I got to start on dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what the cook is doing during this time period. All right, so... When they finally found the energy, and the battle was finally over, Avery's crew were the clear winners. Sadly for the Muslim sailors, things just got worse. Since a bunch of Avery's guides ended up dying during the fighting, their friends wanted revenge. But since they weren't fighting with foam swords and water guns, it shouldn't come as a shock that death might be the end reward. Regardless, torture and murder were on the menu that day as a result. They also raped the women on board. All of this happened while Avery was on his own ship. Plausible deniability, I guess. And he could officially say that, nay, not he. He didn't murder and torture and rape. Huge distinction right there. Anyway, so the fabulous treasures taken from ship number two included ivory, jewels, gold, and silver, 500,000 pieces worth, and expensive fabrics. Once all the goods were transferred to the fancy, Avery and his tiny flotilla got the hell out of Dodge. Once they were almost 2,500 miles away from the scene of the crime, they stopped at the island of Bourbon and divided the spoils. The regular crew got 1,000 plus pounds each, aka one share of the treasure, while Avery received two shares, which was the usual rate for a pirate crew. Then the ships went their separate ways. The fancy sailed off to the Caribbean, ending its journey in the Bahamas, which had yet to become the famous pirate haven it would be known for. By the time Avery and his crew reached Nassau, Avery was a famous and well-known pirate. Stories were already starting to spread all across Europe. Stories that helped him become a legend. Avery paid off the governor for safe passage in Nassau, pretending they were a slave-trading vessel. Naturally, he also gave a fake name. And then, to sweeten the deal, he even offered to hand over the fancy, sans cargo, of course. The deal was done. Welcome to Nassau. While the rest of the European world was wondering, where in the world is Henry Avery? And trying to hunt him down, he had his feet up in one of the king's own colonies. Probably having a good laugh about it, too. Probably. He, right? He palled around for a bit, but what he really wanted was to sit back and enjoy his riches, and Nassau was not the place he wanted to do it in. And this is where some of his crew members got off the ride. A bunch of them set up shop in Nassau, ready to start lives and get wives. A second group bought a ship and headed back to England in April 1696. Group number three decided to journey to Charleston, South Carolina. And Avery's group purchased a ship and left Nassau. The Seaflower, as the ship was named, was on its way to Ireland. In June 1696, Avery and company arrived in County Donegal, Ireland, where they parted ways. Eight of Avery's crew eventually ended up in prison, and five of them were hanged in London in November 1696. As for Avery, though, he was a tricky bastard. 
When he and his crew parted ways, he was never heard from again. All we have are rumors and the account in a general history of pirates. When officials asked Avery's arrested crew members where their captain went, they had absolutely no clue. He went to Scotland, to Dublin, nay, to Plymouth, to London to shack up with Mrs. Adams, the wife of his quartermaster. One of the great mysteries in history, what the actual fuck happened to Henry Avery. As for a general history of the pirates, which was published decades later in 1724, Captain Johnson wrote that Avery actually tried to hang his hat in Devon, but was basically swindled out of his riches by the merchants he tried to sell his goods to. You get what you get, or else we tattle on you to the law. So he took the shit deal, pocketed his pennies, and died of sickness, poor as can be. Not the most glorious end for one of the most famous sea thieves, but again, Avery's end really is still a mystery. On to Bachelors number three and four, Samuel Bellamy and Paul's Grape Williams, whose stories are pretty intertwined with each other. Honestly, a lot of the pirates are. We'll find them meeting up with each other, or being in the same place, many times over. We don't know much about Bellamy before his pirating days, so here are the basics. He was born in England, maybe Devon, and possibly served on a naval or merchant vessel. And here is where it gets even more shady. There's this legend about why Bellamy became a pirate, but how true it is, is a mystery. It's very possible it's not true at all. According to this story, Bellamy eventually wound up in a small village near Cape Cod, where he made heart-shaped eyes at a young woman by the name of Mary Hallett, or Maria. Mary, Maria, one of those. She also thought he was the bee's knees. But as with all great tales of love and loss, her well-to-do farmer parents were not fans of the relationship. Huge nay to any marriage between the two. Instead of going the Romeo and Juliet route, Bellamy left so he could become a successful well-to-do man himself. Because then they'd give their blessing, right? Hmm. So the truth of it. There really was a Mary Hallett who came from a good family. But we don't have anything that proves Bellamy and Mary even knew each other, let alone loved each other. As for Paul's grave Williams, we do have more information about him. A little ironic considering Bellamy's fame as a pirate, but okay. This guy was not a bachelor by any means. He had a wife and two kids and came from a pretty well-to-do family of his own. His grandfather, Lieutenant Nathaniel Williams of the Colonial Militia, was involved in Boston politics and had a nice bit of land for himself. Paul's grave's papa, John Williams, was involved in Rhode Island politics. He was also a well-to-do merchant. Interesting, isn't it? Where he came from to where he ended up, a pirate and a friend to Samuel Bellamy. We don't know how the two of them teamed up, but team up they did. In 1715, they weren't pirates yet. Just two guys trying to find some treasure. Months before they set out, a bunch of Spanish ships were taken out by a hurricane near Florida, laden with gold and silver. Their goal was to find and take some of that gold and silver for themselves, with Bellamy as the captain, of course. When they made it to the scene of the shipwrecks in January 1716, they discovered they weren't the only ones there. The Spanish were there, of course, to reclaim what was theirs. Ships from various other countries had also already come and gone, so imagine how much is really left for them to choose from. Now, these shipwrecks weren't a quiet whisper down the lane type thing. When the Spanish ships were destroyed by the hurricane, it was a shout out from the rooftop, guys, there's all this fucking gold and silver for the taking, sort of wreck. Fun fact, for any fans of the Black Sail Stars TV series, the Urca de Lima was a real ship, and it was a part of this fleet of ships, but the Urca was not wrecked. It was run aground by its crew to avoid getting destroyed by the storm. So the gold and silver looting expedition that Bellamy and Williams went on did not involve the Urca. So since so many ships had already been on the scene and the Spanish were scavenging what was left, Bellamy and Williams had to pack it in. No gold or silver for them. Instead, they turned to piracy. They were able to get their hands on two periagua, 
periaguas. I don't know if you're supposed to pronounce the S at the end of that. I apologize. AKA canoes that were faster than their ship. And they used their ship as payment for the canoes. Then they teamed up with Henry Jennings, another famous pirate captain from the Golden Age. They went after the St. Marie, a French merchant vessel near Cuba. Bellamy, Williams, and their crew were the ones in charge of getting the captain of the St. Marie to surrender, and they did it all from their canoes, naked as the day they were born, except for all their weapons, of course. Talk about making a statement. Jennings then stepped in and forced the St. Marie sailors to tell him where they hid all their coins, also known as pieces of eight. No, not the knickknacks the pirates and pirates of the Caribbean assembled together for the brethren of the court to free Calypso. Actual money. Thirty thousand pieces to be exact, and by forced, I do mean tortured. But wait, there was another ship in the area, the Marianne, and Jennings wanted it when his guys came back and told him that yet another pirate captain, Benjamin Hornigold, had already been there, done that. Jennings was pissed off, and he took after Hornigold. No idea what his angle was. A fight for the loot, a stern scolding about not taking treasure until he's telepathically made aware that Jennings wanted it. We don't know. But while Jennings was off on his wild pirate chase, Bellamy and Williams took the opportunity that Jennings literally left open to them. They stole the coins, and off they went. If Jennings was mad before, he very likely wanted to set everything on fire when he got back. Instead, he destroyed the canoe Bellamy and Williams left behind. Oh well, it's not like they were coming back for it. Ironically enough, Bellamy and Williams actually came across Hornigold afterwards. And who exactly was Benjamin Hornigold? Another very famous pirate, naturally. Hornigold was also British. He started out as a privateer during the War of the Spanish Succession before turning pirate at the end of the war. Pretty much every pirate knew his name. And it's really thanks to Hornigold and his friends that Nassau became the pirate haven that it was. In 1713, they arrived in Nassau and claimed it for themselves. Hornigold and his buddies were known as the Flying Gang. He was an interesting phenomenon among pirates. Unlike other pirates who threw off the yoke of their mother country once they pledged their lives to the black, Hornigold stayed loyal to Great Britain. He did not attack British ships, period. Only French and Spanish ships would do. Which is why Bellamy and Williams didn't stay with him for long. They did join up with Hornigold at first, though, at which point Bellamy became the Marianne's captain. The ship Hornigold got his hands on before Jennings could get to it. Not long after this, they made even more friends. Captain Olivier Lavasseur, nicknamed La Buse, forgive me if I said that word incorrectly, aka the Buzzard, joined the pirate party. He was also a privateer turned pirate. Off they went a pirating, sometimes together and sometimes apart. But Hornigold's refusal to attack British ships was becoming a problem. Labuse and Bellamy saw British ships the same way they saw French and Spanish ships, ripe for the taking. So they parted ways after a vote removed Hornigold as the big boss and replaced him with Bellamy. But Hornigold was still a well-liked man. So he and his loyal crew, aka the ones who didn't vote against him, were able to leave on his own ship. Off he went to Nassau while Labuse... Bellamy, Williams, and almost 200 pirates went looking for more prizes. In November 1716, they took a British merchant vessel as a prize, the Sultana. Palsgrave Williams became the captain of the Marianne, while Bellamy took command of the Sultana, all as a result of the crew's penchant for voting. Soon enough, Labuse and his crew struck out on their own. No hard feelings, go live your dreams. In April 1717, Bellamy and Williams captured a very nice prize, the Wida, a British slave ship. After three days of chasing down the Wida while flying British colors, they finally caught up and raised the black. And why did it take three days? 
Because Captain Lawrence Prince of the Wida thought things felt a little hinky, even with both ships flying the British flag, so he tried to run. Unfortunately for him, it didn't quite work out. Instead of going out in a blaze of glory, Captain Prince surrendered, and boy, were Bellamy and Williams beyond thrilled. The Wida was a nice ship, only a few years old, and it was filled to the brim with all the good stuff. Gold, silver, sugar, indigo, you name it. In addition to the loot on the Wida, the pirates also took the Wida as a part of the loot. The ship was theirs. End of story. But Prince wasn't left without. He was given the Sultana, and a lot of the goods were also returned to him. The gold and silver were not, obviously, which came to about 20 to 30,000 pounds. 20-ish pounds were given to Prince, you know, for the trouble. About five of Prince's guys joined the pirate crew, while three weren't given a choice at all. Goodbye, Captain Prince. Stay safe out there. Bellamy and Williams decided to return to New England, so they left the Caribbean behind and headed north. Unluckily for them, their ships were separated by a thick fog. The Wida was all alone off the coast of Virginia, but no worries. Bellamy figured they'd all just meet up near Maine as scheduled. That wasn't going to stop them from trying to take as many prizes as they could along the way. They were still pirates after all. One of the ships they captured was the Anne Galley, which Bellamy kept. It was going to be used as a moving, floating warehouse. At the same time, Williams and the Marianne were doing the same thing, sailing north, hunting prizes, and hoping to meet up with Bellamy later on. Since the Marianne was a smaller ship, Williams couldn't just attack any old ship. He finally spotted one that fit the bill, the trial, which surrendered. Captain John Lucas was told to row over to the Marianne, or else his ship would be no more. The pirates took what they wanted and then returned the captain to his ship, but he wasn't free to go. He had to follow the Marianne, or else they'd kill him. But Captain Lucas got lucky. While chasing after another ship, the wind was in Lucas's favor, so he sailed away. And then there was a really bad storm off the coast of Long Island, where Williams was located. Instead of trying to fight through it or outrun it, the Marianne found cover. Bellamy, on the other hand, had no idea what was coming. He was still near Cape Cod, where things were much, much calmer. The Wida was having a pretty successful run of it. The pirates had captured a ship at the same time Paul's grave Williams and his men were taking shelter from the storm. The Mary Ann, different from the Marion. Now, the Marion of Dublin wasn't full of gold, but at least it had alcohol on board. Gotta love alcohol. And then came another thick fog, like the one that separated the Wida from the Marianne. This time around, Bellamy made sure his three ships were right next to each other. Instead of trying to find land, Bellamy had the ships come to a complete stop. Finding land in thick fog was pretty much a recipe for disaster, but the fog was the least of their worries. Rain, thunder, lightning, wind. Sounds like the arrival of Thor. But no, a heavy storm was rolling in and pushing the ships in the direction of land, which was really, really bad. Yeah, and based on the description of the storm, it kind of sounds like a nor'easter. If you're not familiar with the term, those are really fucking bad storms that we tend to get up here on the northeast coast during the winter. Uh, But don't quote me on that. I'm just making a guess. Again, it sounds like a nor'easter, but uh, again, I I I don't know for sure. I'm also not, you know, cannot travel back in time to get the reading of the wind and such. Why not? I, you know, tried, didn't work out. Mm, Well, at least you tried. All right. Now, to make matters even worse, the ships started separating from one another. The pirates tasked with taking care of the Mary Ann were in trouble. The ship was getting closer and closer to land. So they made a choice. The sailors of the Mary Ann and the pirates from the Wida worked together to run the ship aground, which saved lives. The sailors of the Anne Galley and the pirates on board her also made a play to save their ship. They dropped all their anchors and hoped they'd hold until the storm was over. 
they made the right play. When the skies cleared, the Anne Galley was right where she was supposed to be, anchored to the ocean floor. The Anne Galley raised its anchors and started heading in the direction of Maine. Richard Noland, Bellamy's quartermaster and the pirate in charge of the ship, was heading to the original designated rendezvous. He crossed his fingers that Bellamy and the Wida would meet him there. And then there was the Wida, which had traveled a bit further than the other two ships. Bellamy made the same play as the Anne Galley. The Wida dropped all anchors, and for a moment it looked like it just might work, except it didn't. The ship and its anchors were still being pushed towards the land by the storm. On to plan B, run the Wida aground like the Mary Ann had managed to do. They cut the anchors free and tried to turn the ship around so they could drive the ship towards the beach bow first. That would be the front of the ship for those unfamiliar with ship terms. But plan B also failed. The ship didn't turn and the stern of the ship collided with land. The Wida had become a gruesome shipwreck, bodies and treasures thrown all about. Around 160 men were dead, which included pirates and their forced guests from the captured ships. Only two survived the wreck. John Julian, one of Bellamy's guys from the original canoe crew, and Thomas Davis, a carpenter who was forced into service. The famous pirate captain Samuel Bellamy, which history knows as Black Sam Bellamy, was dead. As for the half-beached Marianne, the survivors were able to get to the beach and thank their lucky stars they were alive. John Cole and William Smith, two dudes who called the area home, found the wreck and its survivors and were nice enough to take them to John Cole's house. Things were okay for the pirates. Until they weren't. One of the Marianne sailors pointed the finger. Eight of these guys are pirates! Sam Bellamy's crew! The pirates tried to make a run for it, but they were caught by the Justice of the Peace and were taken to the jail. No surprise there. And while he was at it, the Justice of the Peace imprisoned the captured sailors for good measure. Just in case. The trial started in October 1717 in Boston, but only eight of the nine pirates were actually put on trial. John Julian, one of the two survivors from the Wida, was likely sold into slavery. According to Woodard's Republic of Pirates, he was a native of Central America, one of the Mosquito people. So while he was seen as an equal on Bellamy's crew, the colonial officials didn't have the same view. This, sadly, was the usual outcome for any black pirates as well. They were rarely tried as pirates and were instead sold into slavery, the very inhumane existence they had freed themselves from. So there were actually two trials. One for the pirates wrecked on the Marianne, and the other for the forced pirate convert, Thomas Davis. All seven pirates said they were innocent. Pirates? Who? Them? No way! It was that damn Samuel Bellamy. He made them do it! They only became pirates because he forced them into it. Only one, though, was declared innocent. Apparently, there was evidence that Thomas South had, in fact, been forced to join the crew. He got to walk. The other six pirates were found guilty. Interestingly enough, the trial didn't try them or charge them for being pirates before the Marianne, only for what they did once they found the Marianne and were on board the ship. Thomas Davis was also found innocent. Again, evidence was brought before the court. Bellamy and his crew chose a pirate's life for Davis. As for the six pirates found guilty... I'm sure you will be incredibly shocked to learn that they were all hanged. We'll pick back up again with Paul's grave Williams at a later point. There's more to come with his story. Time to meet back up again with Captain Benjamin Hornigold. As we mentioned a little bit ago, Hornigold got the boot, so he and 26 of his guys went back to Nassau. Among these men was Edward Thatch, or Teach. Teacher Thatch. We've heard it both ways. Remember this dude. He's going to be a big player in the game of piracy. While in Nassau... Hornigold put himself to work. When he wasn't busy with the flying gang or sailing the high seas and capturing ships, he was making sure Nassau would be ready if the Spanish or British came calling. 
He had a bunch of cannons moved to Fort Nassau, ready to use at the first sign of attack. In the fall of 1716, Hortigold and his men took a very nice ship as a prize. Instead of taking it back to Nassau to be looted and destroyed, though, Hornigold and the rest of the island council, who they were, we have no idea, decided they could put the ship to better use. And so they did, by giving it to Edward Thatch, who was to become the biggest, baddest, scariest dude to ever go a-pirating. And if you've never heard the name Edward Thatch or Edward Teach, you've probably heard the name he became known by, Blackbeard. By the time March 1717 rolled around, Blackbeard was one of the most powerful pirate captains in Nassau, outranked only by three others, including Hornigold. Blackbeard and Hornigold were still, at this point, hunting prizes together. At the beginning of April, Hornigold and Blackbeard captured the bonnet, which was on its way back to Jamaica. Not only was there an actual chest of gold, but Hornigold decided to trade in his ship for a better model. He'd take the bonnet and give his ship over to Captain Hickenspottern, since the man was smart enough to surrender without a fight. Things continued to look up on their way back to Nassau. Hornigold and Blackbeard captured another ship, this one called the Revenge. They took what they wanted and let the vessel go. All in all, they plundered a whopping 100,000 pounds and solidified the support of their men and Nassau. No more threats or whispers of takeovers for them. After taking some time to make the bonnet pirate ready, Hornigold and Blackbeard went right back out again. In July, they came across a ship carrying flour. While it wasn't silk, tobacco, or a chest full of money... Flour would make sure that the people of Nassau had bread to eat in the coming months. They brought it back home, and from there, things took an interesting turn. Let's quickly loop back around to Palsgrave Williams and Richard Noland from Bellamy's crew. Don't worry, there is a method to our madness. Usually. Yeah. When the Wyatt was dashed against the shore, Palsgrave Williams still didn't have a clue that his best bud was dead and the treasure was gone. He eventually made it to their rendezvous point and waited and waited and waited. No Bellamy. No Richard Noland with the Anne Galley either. What to do? The only thing left, return to Nassau. Noland had come to the same conclusion. Palsgrave Williams did find out what happened to Bellamy and the Wyda on his way home. Samuel Skinner, the captain of a ship Williams had captured, passed on the news. Gone, gone, gone. Bellamy and his treasure and most of his crew. All gone. Williams let the ship go and continued on to Nassau, bumping into Noland somewhere along the way. Palsgrave Williams and Richard Noland sailed into Nassau and passed on the news to the pirates. They also shared that nine of Bellamy's crew were set to be tried, with a 99% chance of execution. In Boston, when Bellamy and Williams left Nassau, they had 125-plus men with them. When Williams and Nolan returned, only 50 returned with them. A lot of the pirates were pissed off, especially Blackbeard. Bellamy was his buddy, and now nine of his crew were going to be executed. And someone helped Boston if they were, because Blackbeard swore vengeance if the pirates were hanged. But before he could get his potential vengeance on... A few things came first. Blackbeard was out on his own for the first time while Hornigold took care of some last-minute errands. He planned to meet up with Blackbeard, but first he asked Richard Noland, Sam Bellamy's former quartermaster, to be Hornigold's eyes and ears on the island. With that done, Hornigold loaded his vessel with some choice items, such as flour and sugar, and headed out to Harbor Island. Around that time, some very important news reached the island thanks to the very excited Governor Benjamin Bennett of Bermuda. Say that five times fast. He wanted to be the one responsible for telling all and sundry the news. And by that, we mean he printed copies of the announcement and had his son deliver it. What was the news, you ask? King George was offering a pardon to all pirates. All's forgiven, no questions asked. Sounds awesome, right? The perfect, bloodless end to piracy. Except, not everyone was thrilled by the news. It wasn't something they ever asked for, or wanted. Nassau was divided. Pirates like Henry Jennings and Richard Noland were stoked. They were the pirates who chose a pirate's life because they wanted to make more money. 
Here was their way out on a silver platter. They couldn't be happier. To show this, they went to Fort Nassau and flew the Union Jack. Hornigold was still sailing the high seas at this point. However, he was 100% in the pro-pardon camp. This group also included, unsurprisingly, all the guys that were forced into piracy. The other half of the pirates were quite the opposite of happy. Angry, outraged, completely pissed off. Pick one. These were the roughest of the rough, those who took pride in flying the black. This group included Paul Scrave Williams, Edward England, Jack Rackham, and Charles Vane, the one leading the anti-pardon faction. Their response to the pardon was a whole lot more dramatic. They all got together to storm the fort, tear down the Union Jack, and raise the black in its place. What do you do when two sides of the island are completely at odds? Convene the general council, of course. Unfortunately, since no one could agree on anything... Big shocker, the council didn't accomplish a single thing. So what ended up happening was that some people started packing their bags. They weren't going to take the pardon, so they might as well cut loose sooner rather than later. They made sure their ships were ready to go in case they needed to get the hell out of Dodge. Hornigold and many of the pardon seekers decided to stay, but Hornigold went a step further. He sent some of his men to Port Royal to ask for a Royal Navy warship to come to Nassau. Funny thing, though. Hornigold didn't need to ask. There was already a ship on the way from New York. Captain Vincent Pierce of the HMS Phoenix hopped to once the New York governor gave the all-clear to head to the Bahamas. Making sure his ship was ready to take on pirates if need be, he set out and arrived in Nassau in February 1718. He sent his lieutenant, Mr. Simons, ashore with news of the pardon. Thanks to Hornigold, things probably ended a whole lot better than they could have. He offered the pirates a compromise. Option 1. Take the pardon, live your life, be happy. Option two, take the pardon for the moment, but do what you want after that. If that included going back to pirating, so be it. We're going to leave it here with Hornigold for the moment, but this isn't the end of him. He comes back into play after Woods Rogers arrives in Nassau. We'll meet up with both of them later on. All right, let's take it back a hot second before the pardon to introduce a new pirate who literally came out of nowhere. Steed Bonnet wasn't a sailor. He didn't have anything to do with the ocean outside of the fact that he lived on an island. Bonnet was a former major in the Barbados militia, though we don't actually know what he did as a part of the militia, a dude from a well-to-do land-owning family living in Barbados. Apparently, he just up and decided to become a pirate because his marriage sucked. After the death of his first child, Steed never really got over it, not that we blame him. He ended up having three other children, though they weren't enough to fill that empty hole in his heart. He became depressed, maybe even a little insane. Many of his friends thought his marriage was driving him up the wall. This was around the time Bellamy and Williams were causing mayhem. While others, including Bonnet's friends, were up in arms about the pirates, Bonnet was halfway in love with piracy at this point. It was like a fantasy story come to life for him. And so, one day, maybe after breakfast or a walk, who knows, he decided he was going to become a pirate and announced it to his friends and family who were very obviously not on board with the idea. He bought a ship and went into the local taverns to entice people to sign up to be a part of his crew. About 70 people decided to join him. He named his purchased, not properly stolen ship, like a pirate should, the Revenge. Now, to be clear, this revenge is not the same revenge that- We'll meet later on. Or- No, that Hornigold and Blackbeard um, captured on their way to Nassau and looted Mm. and then sent sail. This is a completely different revenge. Yeah, there were a lot of ships sailing about named Revenge. Revenge. Okay, you're going to find that pirates are not that creative. No, they name things the same shit. Like, there's several of one type, like, one name. Like, there were a lot of Thomases and Anns and Marys running around during this time period. Pirates were doing the same shit to their ships. It's it's awful. I don't know why they would do that, but it's awful. Yeah. At least, I mean, you can actually say that at least the British were pretty creative. 
with their their names That's for their true. ships. That's true. All right. So he bought this ship. He named it. All that was left were the articles because, of course, every pirate worth his weight in gold had articles. Here's the thing, though. Bonnet's articles were weird for a pirate, to say the least. His articles stated his crew would be paid an actual wage instead of based on the shit they stole. With everything on his to-do list marked off, Bonnet weighed anchor and sailed for Nassau. But first, Bonnet took a slight detour to the Carolinas. On August 26, 1717, the Revenge captured a ship. There wasn't anything worth stealing, but they refused to let the ship go. No need to allow the captain and his men to alert everyone in the area that there was a pirate afoot. No worries, though. Another ship came by a few hours later. Unfortunately, the captain of said ship, being from Barbados himself, knew exactly who Steed Bonnet was. He was trying to use the alias of Captain Edwards. Downside, Bonnet wasn't able to last the day without people figuring out who he was. Plus side, Captain Joseph Palmer's ship had goods worth money on board. On to the next hunt. Thing was, the crew couldn't decide on a course. And Bonnet, having absolutely zero experience captaining a ship, had no idea how to rein in his crew. They were already arguing nonstop. Eventually, they just headed in the direction of the Straits of Florida. And then, a whole lot of badness. This is the perfect example of what happens when the crew is all over the place and the captain in charge has no business being a pirate captain. The revenge ended up in a fight with a Spanish warship. Talk about punching above your weight. Had Bonnet had some kind of experience, he would have tucked tail and ran. There was no way, absolutely no way, his ship could take on a man of war. But they sure as fuck tried. By the time they realized their only option was to flee, there were several dead or injured, including Bonnet. The kind of injury that was of the life and death variety. While Bonnet was possibly dying in his cabin, his crew made for Nassau. It was at the end of August that the Revenge sailed into Nassau Harbor. No one knew who the ship belonged to, but obviously it was a pirate ship since it flew the black. And then out walked Steed Bonnet, bandaged from head to toe, maybe, and dressed in his expensive fucking robe. Considering everything we've told you thus far, can you honestly be surprised? If the answer is yes, please rewind and listen again to this section. (laughs) Bought a pirate ship. Paying an actual wage. (laughs) So the people of Nassau were shocked. Who is this crazy person dressed in a robe? Why is he here? So many questions. In the end, Bonnet was welcome on the island as long as he handed over the revenge to be used as the pirates saw fit while he was recovering, specifically to be used by Blackbeard, all while Bonnet rested in his cabin. And this isn't the end of Steed Bonnet. We're just going to take a slight break from him and his antics to dive into Blackbeard since their stories become intertwined with one another. The Blackbeard of legend is a force to be reckoned with, and it's not an exaggeration. There is a reason Blackbeard became one of, if not the most, terrifying pirate on the open seas. Part of it had to do with where his piratey name came from. Let's start with the obvious. Yes, he did have a black beard. Wouldn't it be funny if he was blonde? (laughs) One of those ironic nicknames. Uh, That would have been good. But it's what he did with it that really put it over the top. He sectioned off portions of his beard and, when capturing a ship, would light hemp cords and place them either under his hat or near his face, beard, place, location, to look as frightening as possible. Imagine, his ship captures yours and here comes this man covered in pistols with a smoking head who looks like he could be on fire and is totally okay with it. I don't know about you, but surrender would be at the very top of my to-do list. So why the whole seaside fire circus? Because it made people scared which made them far more likely to surrender. 
which meant less bloodshed, loss of his crew, and captured ships that remained whole. The other thing behind his terrifying reputation was because he had a pretty big temper, which he used to his benefit. If sailors knew who he was, they'd surrender more likely than not. If they chose to fight, Blackbeard and his crew could be brutal. So where's this dude come from? It's a mystery. Not really. No one knows. So there are so many theories, but none of them can actually be verified. What we do know is that by the time the history books have any mention of him, he's going by the name Edward Thatch or Edward Teach. One of which may be his real name, but again, we're really not sure. Here's what else we know. He was a privateer during the War of the Spanish Succession. After the war ended, he didn't want to work on another ship. Considering what we know about how these sailors were treated, can you blame him? So instead, he showed up in Nassau in 1715 and joined Hornigold's crew. The two of them were thick as thieves, and when Steed Bonnet showed up with a revenge in September 1717, Hornigold thought the ship should go to Blackbeard. As we mentioned earlier, that's exactly what happened. Bonnet ended up convalescing in the captain's cabin while Blackbeard fixed up the ship before heading out into the open waters on his own for the first time. While sailing, Blackbeard learned all he needed to learn about Steed Bonnet. He was weird, unsuitable as a captain, and did we mention weird? When he wasn't in his cabin recovering, he was on the deck with a book in hand, still dressed in another one of his fucking fancy robes. Blackbeard figured out quickly that Bonnet's control of his ship was fragile and could easily be taken, but he bided his time. Blackbeard didn't need to take the revenge from Bonnet. Not just yet, anyway. In the meantime, he made a plan and shared it with his men. It was time to wage war against the British. Remember the whole revenge for Bellamy and his crew thing? Yeah, so since Bellamy's death, Blackbeard wanted to cripple the British. Economically, that is. For as terrifying a reputation as Blackbeard had, he actually wasn't the biggest fan of just killing because they had the power and ability to do it. Go figure, right? So he plundered British ships, looting items like rum, food, jewels, and tools, and then his crew tossed everything else overboard. There was no holding back. Without Hornigold to temper him and caution restraint, Blackbeard and his men could do as they liked. And boy, were they on a roll. They captured ships left and right, making sure they were constantly on the move. One day, Blackbeard and his men were just one more pirate crew on the sea, and the next day, they were all anyone could talk about, especially in the American colonies. Merchants were terrified, and they made sure to share their stories with anyone who would listen. Blackbeard had a method to his madness. Shouldn't come as a shock, though. He specifically targeted ships from New England for a very simple reason. Bellamy's men, at this point in Blackbeard's story, were still in prison and waiting for their trial. Blackbeard wanted to make a point. If the Bostonians hurt those men, he'll hurt theirs. Tit for tat, tale as old as time. Here's the thing about Blackbeard, though. There's absolutely no fucking conceivable way he did everything that's been attributed to him. There are some accounts that have him sailing with Hornigold again, but that just really wasn't so. They were hundreds of miles away from one another, sailing in opposite directions. It probably worked to Blackbeard's benefit, if you think about it, increasing his success, making him seem like he could do the impossible, all those ships he supposedly captured, and so the legend of Blackbeard continued to grow. During all his looting and plundering, Blackbeard captured and kept another ship. Sadly, we don't actually know what the name of the ship was, but the important part is that with the revenge and this mystery ship under his command, Blackbeard thought it was high time he took on a sizable frigate. So they headed down to the Caribbean where ships were constantly out and about, and Lady Luck was on their side. In the middle of November, they found a prize, La Concorde, a French slave ship. We don't know what kind of ship it was, could have been a man of war, who knows. 
The type of ship La Concorde was is lost to history, we're afraid. We only know that it was a frigate, which could be a man of war. But again, nothing concrete. Anyway, Captain Pierre Dossett was very aware that if his ship was attacked, there would be no fighting back. He and his men had been sailing for eight months, and it was far from an easy journey. They survived really bad storms, somehow made it to Waida to exchange their cargo for enslaved Africans, and then a good chunk of his crew got sick with some dying of tropical diseases they picked up in Africa. Others were suffering from scurvy. Add to that that he was carrying less guns than normal to accommodate the number of enslaved Africans he had below deck, he was seriously outgunned and outmanned. When Blackbeard's crew shot some warning cannons, Dossett really tried to get his men up and ready to fight. But then more cannons were fired. That was the end of it. The men had nothing left in them. Dossett ordered their colors be struck, and he surrendered. Blackbeard found himself a new ship, one that could maybe even surpass Bellamy's Wida. It was a big ship, a better ship, than the Revenge, that is, and most importantly, it was a fast ship. Blackbeard went to Bequia to make La Concorde pirate-worthy. There, Blackbeard and his men forced several of Dossett's men to join them. Some of them included the surgeon, cook, gunsmiths, and a carpenter. A handful of Dossett's men voluntarily joined the pirates. Blackbeard then took command of La Concorde and renamed it Queen Anne's Revenge. Steed Bonnet, who was all healed up, got the revenge back. One big, happy pirate family, ready to take on the world. As for the enslaved Africans, in case you're wondering, most of them were sadly still in chains, remaining with Dossett. Some of them very well may have been freed and taken on as volunteers by Blackbeard, but most of them were not. Just a week or so later, on November 28, 1717, Blackbeard attacked Guadalupe Town. There's no record of why he did this, but he and his men showed up, cannons blazing, set the town on fire, and then left as if they'd never been there, with a French ship they'd captured full of sugar. Maybe they really needed sugar? Honestly, who the fuck knows? Half the town burned to the ground before the fire was under control, and it was such a horrendous act that no one, no pirate, had ever done something like this. Blackbeard wanted to be known to set himself apart from and above the rest. With this, he 100% accomplished that. Could that have been the goal? Spreading his fearsome reputation some more? Eh, could be. At this point, news of King George's pardon was spreading. Any pirate could take the offer for the pardon, even if they were in prison. Only caveat. The pirates had a year to take the pardon and only crimes committed before January 5th, 1718 were pardonable. The goal was to get as many pirates as possible to give up their old life. Those who decided the pardon life wasn't for them would be hunted down. No grace, no pardon. Leading the charge was Woods Rogers. And if all things went to plan, there wouldn't be enough of a resistance left when Rogers finally arrived in Nassau as governor. Sadly, though, this pardon didn't reach Boston in time. Bellamy's men were already dead. During this time, Blackbeard and Bonnet are lost to history. Kind of. They left the British behind and focused all of their attention on the Spanish ships around the Gulf of Mexico during the winter of 1717 to 1718. Good news. Blackbeard succeeded in pretty much terrifying everyone. The man really knew how to strike fear in people's hearts. Bad news. Everyone was terrified. At some point, Blackbeard returned to Nassau as a pirate normally did since it was their home base. This time, when he arrived back in Nassau, he was the head of a five-ship fleet and he was firmly on the anti-pardon side of things. But when he learned that Woods Rogers was about to arrive, he had to make a decision. He could stay in Nassau and help Vane fight back, or he could head for the hills. He chose the latter. Without any outside help, there weren't enough pirates left in Nassau to successfully fight back. Don't get me wrong, Blackbeard liked Vane just fine, but he wasn't about to die fighting a losing battle. 
so he figured he'd find a way to get everything he'd ever wanted. Have his cake and eat it too, so to speak. He was going to blockade Charleston. If Steed Bonnet could do it with only the revenge, then Blackbeard sure as fuck could do it with his fleet. The crew agreed, and off they went to South Carolina. It was May 1718 when they arrived at Charleston. Within a few days, they were able to capture a bunch of ships trying to leave the harbor. On one of them, Blackbeard found himself some valuable hostages, two of whom were Samuel Ragg and his four-year-old son William. Ragg was a member of the governor's council, just the man Blackbeard needed to have the upper hand in negotiations. Charleston could have Ragg back. Blackbeard didn't actually want to keep the man forever, but he did want something in return. And no, it wasn't riches beyond his wildest imaginings or fancy clothing. He wanted medicine since members of his crew were sick and needed it, for which the surgeon made a list. Plus, there was the whole threat thing. Give us what we want or we're going to kill everyone, including the kid, and then burn all your ships. You know, the usual. Oh, and uh, let's not forget that there was a two-day limit to give him what he wanted. Blackbeard ended up sending two of his men with a dude named Mr. Marks, one of the hostages, into town to deliver the message. But they didn't make it to shore right away since a sudden storm knocked over their boat and toppled them into the water. They did make it to a little island, but they had to swim there and then spent the majority of the next day waiting for someone to find them. When they finally figured out that no, no one was coming, they found a way to swim to Charleston, which was a nine-mile swim. Luckily, some fishermen found them in the water the next day and scooped them up. Not so lucky. Two days had passed and the message hadn't been delivered yet. Marks at least had a head on his shoulders. While he and the two pirates headed to Charleston, he paid the fishermen to get to Blackbeard, who was super pissed by this point, by the way, to ask for an extension. Blackbeard gave the men another two days, or else he'd really kill the prisoners. And still, the same end result. Nothing. No news. No capitulation. Nothing. There is an upside, though. Blackbeard and his crew still didn't lay a hand on the hostages. Downside, Blackbeard decided he'd just head into town and torment the people of Charleston instead. Here's the thing. When the guys actually made it to Charleston, they split up. Marks went to the governor, told him what was what, and the governor said, hell yes, with a sight of what the fuck are we waiting for? The pirate fellas, on the other hand, did what good pirates do. They found the alcohol, ran into some old buds, and then went back to their place to knock back some more. They were so drunk they didn't know up from down, let alone what day it was. The only reason they came back to the land of the sober was because Blackbeard had arrived in the harbor and the people of Charleston were screaming their heads off. Only then did they jump into action and let their crew know where they were, which stopped any violence to be. Marks gave Blackbeard the medicine and an offer of pardon from the governor. Blackbeard said no thanks, took the stuff, and let everybody go. Not without some loot, though. They left with medicine, some rice, about 1,000 pounds, clothing taken quite literally off the backs of the well-to-do men they held hostage, and a newly captured ship. So, not much in the grand scheme of pirate things, and I'm really confused about the clothing off of the guy's backs. Like, is that a humiliation thing? One last ha-ha at their expense? Go back naked? Uh, I got no words. Yeah, I don't know what that is. It's Blackbeard for you, I guess. So this is an interesting moment in Blackbeard's reign of scariest pirate alive, because honestly, all that planning and work, the blockade, all of it, and for what? Barely any prizes of worth. And Blackbeard did leave without issues, though. Just turned around and headed for North Carolina to the Topsail Inlet. This is where Blackbeard's deviousness really came into play. Here he was, in charge of a huge fleet. He told his men he wanted to take a breather before getting back out on the water. But that just wasn't true. He wanted to take his fleet down to the bare minimum. There were more than 300 men serving under him. It made sailing incognito impossible. And by the time prizes were divided up, the shares were nothing but scraps. What was the point? Most of these men were about to get a very rude awakening. 
and that included the ever-quirky steed bonnet. So what did Blackbeard do? He purposefully destroyed Queen Anne's revenge. He had his fleet sail into an inlet and made sure his ship ran aground on a shoal. Israel hands turned around and sailed back with the adventure, but this ship also hit a shoal. On purpose, that is, because of how close the adventure was to Queen Anne's revenge. Blackbeard's ship sustained even more damage. Bye-bye ship, it was no more. Then Blackbeard gave the revenge back to Steed Bonnet. As in, go free and live your life, you no longer have to sail with me. He had taken it away from him at an earlier point. Punishment for being a terrible captain, which, let's be honest, Steed Bonnet 100%. Such a terrible captain. Oh my god, so bad. And so, Steed Bonnet and his men left, and a little boat, eager to get themselves a pardon. Now, here's where it gets messy. Er, the 100-ish members of the crew who were in on Blackbeard's plot then left 16 men on a bank to fend for themselves on an uninhabited island not too far off from the mainland, and another 200 or so were left in Beaufort. From there, Blackbeard and his men aboard the adventure went to Bath, North Carolina, where Governor Eden, a friend of Blackbeard's, was offering a pardon. And when we say pardon, we are using finger quotes. Basically, it was an exchange. Most of his men had to get the hell out of Dodge, per Eden's orders, and everyone else could settle down with a white picket fence and two and a half kids. Pardoned. But really, Blackbeard would keep pirating, quietly, and Eden and company would be his beard and fencer of stolen goods. Speaking of children, Blackbeard allegedly married one? So lucky wife number 14 was a 16-year-old girl who Blackbeard passed around to his men if he was feeling generous. Disgusting, right? Well, luckily, it very likely isn't true. With everything he was up to, I wonder where he would have found the time to marry so many women. Fuck. To marry even one woman. Let's be honest. Does Blackbeard really sound like a guy who'd share his wife? Ruthless in battle, sure. But if he didn't kill his hostages in Charleston when he had the chance, several times over, you know, the guy who was like, no, I'm really gonna kill him. No, I'm gonna kill him. I'm gonna kill him. Which included a four-year-old boy. Would he let his wife be raped? The guy who actively tried not to kill sailors on the ships he went after? Think on that. While everything about how he treated his wife may 100% be pure fiction, there is a record of his marrying while living in Bath. The wife in question may have been Mary Ormond, Ormond, I'm not sure how to pronounce that last name, the daughter of a future local sheriff. Their marriage was a story passed down through the generations. Could be true, could be a family myth. We don't know. And that's the thing with our pirate friends. As much as we do know, which is quite a lot for some of them, there's still so much we don't even during their pirating days. The curse of the time period and lack of record-keeping. Seriously, awful. If only they all left behind conveniently complete personal diaries. That'd be so nice. So thoughtful of the pirates. You know what? Do you know, like, how tagging is a thing here? So-and-so was here. No. (laughs) If only pirates did that. Blackbeard was here, and this is what I accomplished in a nice bullet point list. (laughs) Right. When Blackbeard was done with North Carolina, at least for the time being, he and his crew boarded the adventure and sailed away, plundering and looting and living that pirate life. A much quieter pirate life. By the way, this is like what we were mentioning earlier, where pirates aren't very creative. This adventure Mm. is not Hornigold's adventure. Yep. Two completely different ships. Same name. Yep. See, Blackbeard captured a ship and renamed it the adventure. The end. It's not even like he spelled it differently, like ADD venture. No, it's just, it's it's adventure. Spelled the same, looks the same, sounds the same. Ridiculous. And again, not creative. Right? At least if it had been like Blackbeard's adventure. (laughs) (laughs) It would define so many different things. No, that just... His ship, his adventure as a pirate, like, Blackbeard, come on. It's not a theme park. (laughs) (laughs) You'd be surprised by how many things there are out in the world that have Blackbeard's name in it, though. Oh, so many. 
In September 1718, Blackbeard returned one last time to North Carolina to Ocracoke Island, and then he had one hell of a party that lasted about a week. Think sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but pirate style. And Charles Vane made a guest appearance, though he left when things started to die down. While Blackbeard chilled and did some business on the side, the people of North Carolina had reached their limit. With rumors floating about that Blackbeard was on a mission to create a new pirate haven in North Carolina, the people wanted to make sure it never happened. Since they couldn't ask their pirate-friendly governor, Eden, they instead turned to Virginia Governor Alexander Spotswood. Spotswood gave an enthusiastic, fuck yeah, and got to work, sending scouts out to North Carolina and worked with the Royal Navy to plan Blackbeard's capture. He even set a reward for Blackbeard at 100 pounds. Not wanting anyone to know they were coming, Spotswood kept all his thoughts and plans to himself. So on November 17, two ships set a course for Orcacoke and arrived on November 21st. Lieutenant Robert Maynard was in charge of the HMS Pearl, and a man by the name of Baker was in charge of the HMS Lime, with Maynard leading the charge. Unfortunately for these Royal Navy men, Blackbeard knew they were coming. His friend Tobias Knight, my god, this man has so many fucking friends. So Knight worked in customs, and he heard what Spotswood was up to, and he sent word to Blackbeard. Blackbeard did absolutely nothing except drink well into the morning. It wasn't like Maynard was going to attack in the middle of the night, so honestly, what the fuck was the hurry? But okay. Then the morning came, and it was a different story. Maynard and his men had some trouble getting into shore due to all the sandbars, but they persisted and kept getting closer. That's when Blackbeard decided it was time to move. He tried to sail away, but not even the adventure could speed away when there was barely any current or wind. Baker in the HMS Lime was able to close the distance between his ship and Blackbeard's. Sadly, Baker and many of his men died when Blackbeard turned the adventure to let loose his cannons. Blackbeard couldn't really get away after that since the wind had completely died down at this point, but that also worked against Maynard. His men had to resort to using oars. They worked hard and were soon close enough that Blackbeard was able to let off another barrage of cannon fire. Most of Maynard's men were down for the count, 21 out of his 35, just to give you an idea. But that didn't stop Maynard. Just like any good pirate, he too could be crafty. The rest of his crew went below decks to hide themselves, pistols at the ready. Maynard, the helmsman, and the pilot stayed where they were, hiding from view. When the HMS Pearl was side by side with the adventure, Blackbeard's men threw grenades onto the deck of the Pearl. Since Maynard's men were down below, it didn't matter. But it did give them the perfect smoke cover to come out from their hiding place and attack Blackbeard's men. And so the fight began. The crewmen of the Pearl versus the adventure. Maynard versus Blackbeard. Welcome to Thunderdome. <laughs> Maynard and Blackbeard aimed their pistols at each other, point-blank range. Blackbeard missed. Maynard didn't. How that happens at point-blank range, who knows. So Maynard's bullet hit his body, but Blackbeard didn't go down. Just when Blackbeard and Maynard were about to kill each other, Blackbeard with his cutlass and Maynard with his second pistol, one of Maynard's crewmen cut Blackbeard's throat. Still, he didn't go down. Maynard shot him again, this time in the chest. That just seemed to make Blackbeard angry. Apparently, he was shot five more times and cut at least 20 times by Maynard's crewmen before Blackbeard finally fell. Like Rasputin, it took what amounted to an army to kill this one man. With Blackbeard dead, his men surrendered. All but one. Caesar, an escaped enslaved African and one of Blackbeard's most trusted men, had been left with instructions should Blackbeard lose. To blow them all, to kingdom come. Just when Caesar was going to light the gunpowder, a prisoner stopped him. It was all well and truly over. 
Maynard chopped off Blackbeard's head and hung it up on a ship like a really grotesque trophy. The body, though, he dumped into the water. One less grisly pirate in the world. That was a win for the British. While Blackbeard's death put a damper on things in Nassau, so too did Steed Bonnet's end. Apparently, after the two of them parted ways, Bonnet was not happy. Who would be? Blackbeard had taken all the treasure, of course. So he spent his time searching for Blackbeard. No dice, moving on. But he didn't want to return home, name disgraced and all. Or return to piracy since he had a pardon and wasn't a great pirate anyway. Plan C. Go to Denmark and become a privateer. What else could you possibly do? His crew was on board with that. Some of them, anyway. A new quartermaster was elected, and he decided that they needed to hunt some prizes to replenish what Blackbeard had taken. They renamed the ship the Royal James to hide their identities a bit. Bonnet wasn't a fan of becoming a pirate again, obviously, since he had his pardon. He said he'd leave. You know, we do this, I'm leaving, that's it. And his crew was like, cool beans, doors that way. So he told his crew to call him Captain Edwards or Captain Thomas, which didn't always work. Another idea he came up with, paying the sailors on the vessels they took, because then they were businessmen, not outlaws. Some of Bonnet's crew, who also liked having pardons, ran away when they got the chance. For some reason, Bonnet didn't. Maybe they hadn't yet reached the port of call he was looking for. Who knows? Honestly, like, man should have run when he had the chance. But on September 27, 1718, two pirate hunters out of South Carolina, led by Colonel William Rett, found the pirates near Cape Fear. The pirates were outmanned and outgunned, but into battle they all went. And the pirates lost, unsurprisingly. Bonnet survived the fight, was arrested, and imprisoned. In someone's house instead of a jail, though, a nod to his genteel upbringing. And then he escaped on October 24th. But he didn't get away. William Rett recaptured him on November 8th, and then he was tried for piracy on November 12th. Verdict? Guilty. Which shouldn't come as a shock. On December 10th, 1718, Steed Bonnet was hanged by the neck until dead. Thanks so much for hanging out with us on this episode of the Dear Bud Love History Podcast. We will meet up one last time with our pirate chums on Saturday, January 2nd, 2021. Can you believe we're almost in the new year? In part three, we'll meet more pirates, get to know the man who put an end to piracy in Nassau, and find out how the golden age of piracy came to an end. Don't forget to check out the show notes for any images and videos we found. Stay safe and be well, everyone. Historians out.